This is Anthony Arino, and you're listening to In the Arena. Step into the arena. Welcome to episode 51 of In the Arena. Today's episode is sponsored by my good friend Jeb Blunt and Sales Gravy University. Sales Gravy University is an innovative training app that's going to allow you to accelerate your sales performance and increase your income. They will teach you at Sales Gravy University how to sell with a complete micro-learning system. And what a micro-learning system is, it's very short videos, tutorials, and audio programs that are in your pocket. It's on your iPhone, or it's on your Android phone, or it's on your iPad. So it's spot training. You can pick it up, you can click the button, and you can get the content that you need to go in and to a a sales call prepared to know how to deal with some objection. There's all kinds of courses there. Soon to have one course for me on planning a sales call that you'll like. It's eight modules there, and they're really fast but they're deep, deep content. And that's what Jeb's known for. So go out to Google and search for Sales Gravy University on iTunes or on the Play Store, or come back to the website here and click the link and you'll be taken through to Sales Gravy University where you can sign up. And I mean, literally some of the courses are a buck. How can you go wrong? So a good um, thank you to my friend Jeb Blunt for sponsoring this episode. This is an interesting episode. I did not know Martin Lindstrom before I invited him onto this. And he describes himself as a branding consultant. And I have him talk about that. And I have him talk especially about his new book, Small Data. And it's interesting because there's all this talk about big data and what big data is. And I've said for a long time, I think small data is more important, but I didn't think of it in the way that Martin does. So you're going to love this guy. You're going to go out and buy the book. It's a really great interview with a person who's got deep, deep chops and deep thinking around small data, about branding, about marketing. He's a well-recognized expert all around the world. Without any further setup, Martin Lindstrom in the arena. Hi, Martin. How are you? I'm fantastic. And you're here in the States in New York. What are you doing in New York? Well, listen, I'm releasing my, my new book, Small Data, and uh, we've been doing the pool, the tour for about a week now. It's, it's great fun. It's incredible hard. You, you know what I mean. Um, but I have to say I learn a lot. You know, to publish a today versus the last six books I published is completely different. I mean, in the old days, was it three years ago? The social was really not part of it, right? And now it's eighty percent social, so it really has changed dramatically. So I learn every day. I expected you to have an Australian accent because <laughs> I, I know that's one of the places that you live, and you have a, a, an accent from somewhere else. Where from? Well, from Denmark. I have what I call a Dinglish accent, which is a combination of Danish and English, <laughs> right? So, which <laughs> can be tricky at times. I tell you. <laughs> Well, tell me, um, I, I've got your new book. I haven't made it all the way through, but I've been looking yep. uh, at what I can. And I want to ask you just some very basic questions. So I went out sure. to your website, which is great. And Thank your you. videos there are great. 
I want to ask you, what does a branding consultant do? What What's the fundamental thing that you help companies with when you're you're doing the work that you do generally? You infuse emotions into products and services. That's really what you do. You have to remember a product is produced in a factory. A brand is produced in our minds. And uh, the better we are creating this web of emotions around your services or products, the stronger emotional attachment people have to it and therefore the higher value you can charge for this. And that's really what I've done for for, for 30 years. And I guess that... um, my my beginning of this whole thing came to, to back to when I was um, a huge fan of Lego still am and, and built up my own Legoland in the backyard of my mom and dad's garden. And what was so funny about it was that, that um, no one showed up when I opened this Legoland except my mom and dad, which were really the, the lowest point of my career at <laughs> that time. So I went to the local advertising agency and had them sponsor an ad I don't know how I managed to persuade them, but I did. And two days later, I had 131 visitors showing up. Only problem was that visitor number 130 and visitor number 131 were the lawyers from Lego suing me. And uh, they said, well, that's our brand. And I said, what is a brand? And they said, that's a logo. And I said, no, it's mine. I just bought the boxes. And then I got a job at Lego. And uh, <laughs> later on, I opened my own advertising agency when I was 12. And and Lego was my first client. And um, then I had them for, yeah, ever since, basically. <laughs> so you were 12. And uh, I'm sure your parents were very happy all the way up until 130 and 131. And then they, they were probably concerned. They were concerned not only because of, of that, but they were also very concerned because I was a very serious kid when I was when I was young there. So I created these canals in cement um, and I had water in them. And uh, the problem is I forgot to empty the water during the winter and it gets really f- freezing cold in Denmark. So these canals broke, the cement broke and flooded the entire basement of my mom and dad's house. So there were several disasters I managed to do when I was a kid. <laughs> and you learned what a, a brand is. What, give me, you're, you're here in the United States and I know your business is global. But give me a couple of the brands that you think in the United States would be um, indicative of variants that are really infusing emotion into into what they do. Well, I I think there's a lot of brands. Of course, Lego uh, is one of them. Um, But I do think that the brands which are are truly emotional are brands which manage to capture people as an audience, as a a group, where it's not just a a, a product, it's more. And of course, I will point out Apple. Um, But the reason why Apple is so powerful is not necessarily because they have great products. It's also because it is a religion. And, And funny enough, in 2008, I conducted the largest neuro a science study in the world where we scanned consumers' brains, about 2,000 consumers' brains, using fMRI, which is a, a methodology to, to scan our brains. And um, what we learned was that Apple literally was constructed in a similar way as religion. We actually scanned both um, Christian, Christianity people, people belonging to the faith of Christianity, and, and hardcore Apple fans. And so the same region in the brain was activated. And then I went across the world to talk to religious leaders and we created this construct to understand what are the 10 ingredients creating powerful brands uh, and creating powerful religions and it was the same it was sense of belonging it was evangelism it was power from the enemy so an enemy picture the thing about Trump uh, it was strong it's symbolic
symbolics. It was the sensory part, it was the storytelling, all those things. And guess what? If you take the biggest and most powerful brands in the world, they all tick those boxes. Whether you hate the brand, I love the brand, you, know, you can take a Trump, he's a brand, and he ticks all the boxes. Or you can take uh, Gandhi, or you can take... Uh, um, a politi- politician, an actor, or you can take a royal family, a country, and of course you can take Apple and Google and all that stuff. So, so really, what it comes down to is to understand the emotional construct of a religion, and that's what I spend a lot of time on. What book was that in that you wrote? It was in Biology, B-U-Y-ology, uh, which was from 2008. I think that's cited in um, maybe um, in in a book. I'm trying to think of who wrote the book. Douglas Rushkoff is it cited in Rushkoff's work? Could could be, yeah, yeah. could be, I'd say, I, yeah. I so. in, yeah. In in those ten um, constructs, those ten rules that you found, yeah. was was a leader part of that in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, yeah. Vi- vision, vision was, uh, and vision is indirectly leadership. And I think it's very important to talk about that because I think a lot of companies and brands today do not have powerful visions. They have statements which are. Um, um, sort of broad and they have statements which are talking about financial gains but it's very few companies which have a statement which is for human mankind and so that's really important for a brand to have that and you will again see the most powerful brands in fact have that and Apple's vision is incredibly powerful but um, they also have another thing which is very important they can condense the entire brand into one word I mean if I go to the car industry and I say uh, I say safety. What car brand would you think of? Volvo. Exactly. Yeah. Now, they did not get to that point by coincidence. Um, in 1956, they employed the first uh, safety engineer in the world coming from the Swedish Air Force. And he invented the three-point seatbelt, which he stole from uh, the airplanes. Um, he was the first to develop airbags in the side of the car, the first to, and I still hate them for this, to develop the seatbelt alarm. Um, and they were the first to to have 24-hour light on in the car. And in fact, by the way, in uh, I think they came up with an, a claim a couple of days ago that in a couple of years from now, they'll have the first crash, 100% crash-safe car. But all that has been encapsulated into one word, safety. So it's not a coincidence they own one word. They've worked hard on it. And you can do the same with, if I say um, uh, cowboy, people will say Marlboro. If I say uh, search, you'll say Google. If I go into the human side to people, I can say rebellious and that would be Richard Branson. Or I can say arrogant and probably people will say uh, Trump. So each of each of the different phenomenons can be encapsulated into one word. And um, I think it's very, very powerful, but also it's very important for brands to be aware of because it helps you to sync or to focus all your initiatives in a company into one little single standing message, right? It's, uh, it's interesting. And I want to try to weave that into a premise uh, that you have that we're all more alike than we are different. And in a video that I watched that you did, you said there are really only probably 500 different types of people. I've I've studied Ken Wilber's work. I don't know if you're familiar with Ken. I am. Yeah. uh, So not a lot of people are, but there's levels, lines, states, types. And and when you start looking at that, there's a a lot of different types. 500 is a lot of types. Can you you give me an example of a type and how you would think about that when you're thinking about branding and marketing and making that emotional connection. Can you give me any any 
Absolutely. Let me just give you a backstory just to frame the whole thing. Um, when you spend as much time as I have in consumer homes across the world, no, I mean, I've been living in or visiting 2,000 different homes across 77 countries over the last decade. You start to establish kind of this instinct. And an instinct for me is an accumulation of experiences and insights you are capturing and you're starting to connect the dots at a subconscious level. You can't express why, you just feel a certain direction. But what also happens is you start to be able to look through walls. You're able to predict what people are doing before they do it. You'll be able to predict what color the wall is in the next door bedroom, right? Um, and that is the reason why um, I'm starting to talk about how similar we are because these homes are surprisingly similar, similar. no matter if it's a person living in Venezuela or Nigeria or, or in Iran. Um, and what I realized was that there was four factors making it different. It was first religion. Now, religion, um, of course, in certain um, cultures, it's, it's extreme. I mean, I've been a lot to Saudi Arabia. And in Saudi Arabia, as you know, women are allowed to drive in, in cars. And because of that, the entire culture is changing. The weather is another factor. Not that you are buying different types of clothes necessary. It's also you eat differently. You no, know, in Northern Europe, you'll eat very heavy, fatty food. Southern Europe, very light food, like oil. And then it's uh, the government rulership. Very important because that actually will set restrictions and rules or will open up the rules, which comes back to a lot of freedom or not freedom. And the after effect of all this is called tradition. That is what's hanging on, clinching on into the society. Even though the rules have changed later on, it still has that after wave. If I take those four factors and wipe them away, we are almost identical. Now, just to give you an example of a character, um, there's one brand I worked a lot with, and I'm actually talking a lot about that in, in the book called Troll Beats. Troll Beats is the, the first bracelet brand ever developed, and they were sort of the spearhead before Pandora, which is not the music service, but these bracelets right. uh, were, were invented. Um, now, Troll Beats have this extreme audience. And, and the extreme audience are hardcore fans to a degree you will never see before. And there's very few of those what's called religious brands almost because people really see the brand as being almost religious. These people, I can see them on the street. I'll immediately know who they are because they have a certain mindset. They are so obsessed with this brand, just to put it into perspective, that they will schedule a conference call every Friday, a global conference call where they'll have 20 people on and they will discuss the brand for four hours, right? <laughs> I'm not kidding. I've been on those calls, right? Now, what's interesting is that category is almost identical to the same people which are Hello Kitty fans. And when I meet a Hello Kitty fan, I can always see you know, who they are. And it's very interesting because Hello Kitty fans typically have one thing in common. They're always lost, either lost their dad when they're a kid or the, the mom, or at least the mom and the dad left the home as very young. And the replacement of that parent typically was Hello Kitty. And you will see that in the entire behavior. Of course, I'm generalizing a lot now, sure. but typically you'll see that, that you can see how their personality is, how they behave, what they like and what they dislike. So you will see you have these pockets of behaviors. Of course, some of these audiences are very extreme. I'm giving extreme cases now. You have more with people with a blend, but you end up with about 500 different people and that's it. And how much is the experiences that those individuals have 
inside the other the other areas that you gave us. So we've got religion. So we've got all these things that roll up in tradition. How much it is, is shaped by the individual experience that they have within that cultural norm? Well, a lot because it becomes a ripple effect. Um, so, of course, it feeds off and they become more and more extreme. And, of course, the community in their own right really affects things a lot. Um, I mean, the surroundings and how we behave um, has an enormous influence on each other. I think the best way to illustrate that is one of the stories I tell in the book where a professor was conducting a, a study about old people. Um, so you wanted to prove that, in fact, the surroundings are determining your health and your behavior. So she literally were taking this bunch of old people, men in the 70s and 80s, and she took them into a house that constructed, which actually was constructed so it imitated back in time. It imitated the time when these people were 20 and 30 years of age. The news running on that television would be the news from back then. Uh, the radio will play the songs from back then. The newspaper will be telling the news from a date back then. The decoration will be the same. And then they would live in this home for about a week. Of course, they had another control group which were not going through this process. They will test the, uh, the physical state of them. They'll test everything. After they left that home, after about a week, they actually had a better health. They felt younger. And basically, every indicator of that they've lost basically 10 years were, were coming across because the surrounding was completely affecting them. So, of course, when we together, we affect each other. And that's a good example of that, right? It makes me want to go back to 1984. 84 <laughs> was a really good year. Um, <laughs> Let, let's get to small data. And yeah. I just wanted to set this up and put some some context around it. Plus, besides that, I'm just intellectually curious about your work. So I wanted to get through a little bit of that. So I work a lot with sales organizations. Yeah. There's a lot of talk in all business right now about big data. And yeah. the, the idea of small data has always <clears throat> intuitively made more sense to me. Um, and there really is no such thing in my mind as big data without small data because you have the yeah. individual things. So that seems to be you're removing it from the source and I'll let you talk about this because I'm sure you have uh, more to say than I do. But I, I, I would ask you if you could to explain the difference between small data and big data and the importance of that distinction in your work right now. And then we'll get into some of the things that are in the book. Well, sure. Um, I think it's fair to say the small data is the counterbalance to big data, where big data is all about correlations and it's all about you know, analyzing the past somewhat trying to pretend like you can now predict the future, small data is all about causation, the reason why. And it's all about analyzing the present time and actually generating creativity and insight which are predicting the future. And that's the, that's the fundamental difference between those two because I find it very hard to believe that you are able to predict the future based on past. But I find it incredibly easy to believe that if you pick up seemingly insignificant observations in consumer homes, you also are finding potential gaps which are leading to opportunities. And let me just explain. Because the essence of small data is really seemingly insignificant observations you make in homes. Uh, my role is really to uh, pick up emotional DNA uh, so the contrast to that is, of course, physical DNA like a nail on a hair. But emotional DNA is those traits we leave behind ourselves every second. We're just not aware of how much they, they reveal about us. But I can tell you they reveal a lot. 
I mean, to give you an example, if I walk into a home, typically we just based on looking at how you hang your paintings, how you place your shoes, how you use your toothbrush will actually reveal who you are as a person, your personality. And and the best way to illustrate that is really, um, no, let's take Facebook. If I take your Facebook page or everyone's Facebook page, it really is a piece of perception. It doesn't tell who you are. It tells the world who you would like to be seen as. It's almost like your color brochure. The, uh, the counterpart or the, the mirror of, of that Facebook page actually exists in our home as well. I call it the perception room. It is the room where you show to the world who you would like to be seen as. And um, the way you pl- find that room, by the way, is that you, you just search for the coffee table book. And in the room where the coffee table book is, you'll see that's the perception room. And as you walk into the perception room and you look around, if you see a, a huge, colorful painting, you can be pretty sure the person is very self-confident. If you see a shelf with packs with a lot of books, you can be pretty sure that person is not very literate. It sounds crazy, but typically people we have noticed now would have all these books displayed in the perception room is trying to compensate for the lack of education when they're younger and they feel kind of, you know, I never really read the amount I should have read and therefore they should. So you're, you're, you're saying this while you're looking at my giant wall of books. <laughs> but is this a perception room? <laughs> no. <laughs> there we go. This is my office. But exactly. There's a huge difference. No, but you're not wrong. I mean, I think um, after I had a piece of my brain cut off, I started reading a book a day and I, I went to the neurologist and I said, I feel like there's something going on with my brain. You know, I must be making new neural connections and it feels like it's on fire and I'm reading all these books. And he shook his head no and he said, you're compensating. There, there's, there's nothing about having a piece of your brain that cut off. There might be new neural connections being made, but nothing like this. And I went, oh, okay. Um, and I kept reading books anyway, so that's a good thing. Well, that's 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 fascinating. And But it comes down to what your neurosurgeon is saying. It's, it's absolutely true because the whole world is about being in balance. Actually, the world is always out of, ba- out of balance. A country, a nation can be out of balance. Take Syria. People are escaping from there. You and I as individuals are out of balance. In fact, we all have small mini scales, all of them out of balance. Maybe I feel I'm too overweight. Maybe I feel I don't have enough friends or I have a midlife crisis. And all of those out of balances really represents an opportunity for a brand because the brand is really compensating for that out of balance. So what my role is as I visit homes is to understand where is the out of balance because that reflects again the the opportunity for a brand. Now, this is interesting because the difference between small and big data is that you will never be able to see these things through big data because big data is all about a ton of data where you can sit and do some data mining, but you need a hypothesis first. You can't just go into the number. You need to say, what am I searching for here? And that hypothesis is really small data. So you need to find the, the causation first, and then you can do the correlation later on. Right? So, so big data is the what, and small data tells us why. Absolutely. And, and, and so the, you really, and I think what you're saying is we tend to come at these problems from the wrong end. We, we try to look and say, I can, this is how I view it in my world. I can count this thing. So if I can count it, then I can make meaning out of the counting. Even though I don't know why the number is what it is, if I can yeah. count it, I can say it's significant and I can, I can go backwards to the hypothesis. You're saying it's better to go the other way. Well, ab- absolutely. And I'll, 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 
I'll show you why. I'll give you a couple of examples about why. I mean, um, in, in 2002, Lego had a huge problem. At all. They really were struggling. And uh, they analyzed a ton of data and concluded out of the data that the instant gratification generation had arrived. Uh, out of that, they then basically changed the size of the products because, of course, if you are instant gratification generation, you won't have the time to build a Lego castle over five days. So they increased the size from these tiny bricks to huge building blocks. And suddenly you could build a castle in two hours. Now, in 2003, December up to the holiday season, the whole sales went down 30%, which really meant that Lego at this stage were close to bankruptcy. And that was the second where Lego said to themselves, there's something wrong. So as a consequence of that, they went into consumer homes across Europe and they ended up in an 11-year-old kid's bedroom in Germany where they were sitting on the floor and they were interviewing this young kid. And the first question they asked him was, um, what are you most proud of? And the kid, he looked around and he pointed at the shelf and there you had an old worn down pair of sneakers. And he said, those ones. And he took them down and they were smelly and, and said, Why? said, because I'm the best skater in town. And when you are the best skater in town, as you know, he said, then you can slide down this skateboard exactly at a degree angle of 12 and a half degrees. It creates this wear and tear, and this is my evidence. In fact, this is my trophy, he said. And that was the second where Lego discovered small data for the first time. Because what they learned was that for kids, once you put them in the driver's seat, in fact, time is not in essence anymore. So they changed the size of the Lego brick back to the tiny ones, added more tiny bricks to the boxes. They developed later on the Lego movie, which really is a storytelling device to put the kid in the driver's seat. And, and today, Lego is, is number one. And I think that's in many ways a very good example about how you had to go in the right order. Yeah. Uh, because I think if you take, there was a, a bank, a major bank here in the US recently, which... Um, Let me hang on just quickly. You can't get that going backwards. You, you no, you can't, can't. You can't. You're not going to be in the room to see the shoes. You, no. You'll never get that insight uh, no. without being face to face. No, no, you can't. No, you can't. You can. You can do some pre preliminary observations through the social media, but remember, most of the social media is is uh, perception, um, because the difference is that uh, the social media is is trying to protect your image. But if I go inside the fridge, it's not a public space. In fact, I tend to say that you can count the number of friends you have by how many fridges you dare to open without permission. And, and I think in many ways that um, when you go inside the fridge, you really see the truth. When you go into the drawer and under the bed, you see the truth. And that's where you, you will discover amazing stuff. I mean, we have all sorts of theories I'm working with in the book, but one of them is the, the conflicting mind, I call it. It's one of the five degrees of small data you can pick up. The conflicting mind is what you discover when you open the fridge. You look at the fridge and from the top, you will see all the fruits and the vegetables and it looks good. If you go down on your knees, you'll see there is a regular Pepsi. And the conflicting mind is really that you actually subconsciously are placing it under the salad so you really can't see it, but you know it's down there. It is when you go into the cupboard and you'll see that your slim dress is hanging first, but behind that you have the fat dress, the one which really is the reality of who you are, but you still keep the slim one even though you'll never be able to fit it. And that 
all of that stuff, all those small data, if you start to combine that, it tells a huge story about how you are out of balance. And that becomes the causation, which can give you the hypothesis to create the correlations. This interview has already been so smart. I'm going to have days and days to think this over. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me ask you to talk about some other clues we leave. So I want to ask you, what does it say about me if I use a long sentence as my password uh, for, for some sort of internet site? Well, it, it depends on how that sentence is constructed and, and what in general you as a person um, is living like and stuff like that. But, but uh, And the reason you probably asked that is because <clears throat> what we have noticed today is that passwords are encapsulating uh, certain memories which you want to freeze. There's only two private things we really have. is your toothbrush, which you rarely share with anyone. In fact, never share it with anyone. And it is your password. And the password typically is an encapsulation either of a goal in your life or of something from the past which you really treasure very high. And uh, so that's typically 80 and 90% of, of the passwords. And by us, with permission, based on permission, we go back into people's passwords which we do, we quite often discover amazing stuff. Now, I'll give you an answer in a second, but I just want to take you on a journey. Um, so for a, a, a supermarket chain in North Carolina called Lowe's Food, we actually went into the homes of consumers and started to discover people's passwords. And what we noticed was, in particular in that region, people had a lot of passwords which were reflecting um, the 60s and the 70s, um, that period of time. And we know from our work, I call that the rosy memories. We always see the past in a more positive light than the present time. That's how our brain is, is designed. So what happens here is that we basically realize people actually don't want to celebrate the present time. They don't feel this is their time. So as we went back to the supermarket chain and redesigned the entire chain and all the stores, we actually were mirroring uh, that period of time. So when you today walk into those food, you actually feel you're coming back to the community which is gone. Now, the password reveals a lot. Of course, if it's a long password and a complex password, it shows a lot about how careful you are as a person. It also shows typically a correlation with how you design your fridge, what you placed inside your fridge and how you order things. So if I went into your fridge and I looked at how you place things, I actually can predict how long your password will be, which sounds crazy. But you have these interesting correlations just as... If you're the type of person with a vacuum cleaning, for example, and you have a little thread on the floor, and you, I'm not sure if you're that type of person, you continue to vacuum clean and vacuum clean, oh, sure. and you, you don't want to pick it up with your fingers. If you are that type of person, you are also the type of person, by the way, which will press even harder on your remote control when it's flat for battery, just to sort of have an idea about you can suck up the last battery of it. And and these type of interesting correlations tells a lot about who we are. So quite often, I don't need to ask you a question. I can just go into the home and I can look at the uh, small data and then we actually know who you are, right? You sent me an email and it had a bunch of emojis in it. What does that say about you? Well, first of all, I just want to say that emoji users have 54% more sex than non-emoji users, just <laughs> you know, according to a study. But if I want to add a little bit more to it... Um, really depends on what emoji uh, you're using. But again, to give you an example here, if you go to Russia, uh, you will notice that Russian people don't smile a lot. In fact, they're very introvert. If you go to Saudi Arabia, you'll notice that Saudi people 
miss nature, they miss potted plants. If you go to UK, you'll notice they have a funny, awkward, quirky type of humor. If I look at the emojis for these three nations, you will funny enough see that the number one most frequently used emoji in Russia is a heart. The number one used in Saudi Arabia is a potted plant. And the number one in UK is a wink. And that gives you an idea about that the entire nation can be encapsulated into one little symbol. So it tells a lot about who you are. Um, but of course, as it's a mixture between big and small data, you need the backstory to understand why. But you certainly can now see there is something about that particular direction which you need to explore. And the difference between causation and correlation is it's not going to help me to use a lot of emojis. No, it's not. No, it's not. Just if you're listening, Um, let me let me weave us into that. So, so how as let me ask you as a a a civilian, a regular person. So, how do I use this? And and tell me what what are the small data cues in everyday life? And this is the blog I write is called the Sales Blog. So I talk a lot to sales and marketing people. What are the data cues that could provide us with insight? And is this a skill that we can acquire? How do you pick up the skill to to do what you do, which is noticing? You're just noticing things that other people are going to step over and not recognize that it could be a data point or something useful to have. Well, it, it's actually very simple, but it, it it's difficult at the same time. The issue is you and I are not present anymore as ordinary human beings. Um, you know, if you wait for someone in a bar and the person hasn't shown up on time, the first thing you do is to grab your cell phone and do something with it, anything with it, just to look like you're not a loser. And and the reality is that I see it almost like a tent, like you have a zipper in a tent. You sort of do this thing here and you look out for five seconds. You do this back again into your little world. And as you do that, three things are happening. The first thing is you isolate the world around you, away from you. You don't meet new people. The second thing which happening is that you're not present, so you don't observe things. And as you don't observe things, you actually don't learn. And the third thing is that you're not bored. And boredom is the key source to creativity because it allows your brain to do a free fly. And that is the trick we're talking about right now. You need to become more present because here's the issue. When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you're touching? That's the smartphone. We actually at work after one minute of being awake. And then we continue as we dress. We continue as we eat our breakfast. We continue being on the phone as we go to work. And at work, we're doing private stuff. So we actually never really present anymore. And beside the fact that that means we're never going through a transition in our life. And by transition, I mean we're changing our mindset, which is incredibly important because it's almost like rebooting your computer. And and this is fascinating stuff because we don't reboot our computers anymore. And we don't do that because we don't reboot our brains anymore um, because that's a mirror of it. And as you don't do that, you know the computer is getting slower if you don't reset it. Uh, But that's the same with our brain. So to do transitions, it's almost like you go into the cinema and you watch these amazing movies and you go out again. That's a transition moment where, whoa, I'm back in reality. That does not happen anymore. The second thing coming back to observing thing is that you need to make sure you make your brain wake up. That means you have to be present. And if you want to teach yourself being present, it's very simple. You go to the airport when you're traveling anyway, you close your eyes for two minutes as you're sitting there waiting to board the plane. And then you start to see people without seeing them. You start to listen to things. And then you try to imagine what is happening around me. 
who is that person? What is that person doing? And as you start to do that, you're actually increasing the senses, the value of the senses. You listen to things more. You smell to things more because you depressed one sense. And as you go through that exercise, you're starting to get on the right track. And then the second thing you should do is to visit consumers in their homes. And here's the sad news. I mean, I did a speech here in New York City some some time ago for 3,000 executives. And I asked all of them, how many of you are spending time in consumer homes just once or twice the last year? And two people raised their hand. And that is the issue we have right now. CEOs and leaders and senior executives never really spend time in the consumers anymore because they fundamentally believe that you can control the consumer by remote control, which, by the way, is a quote from the CMO of Nestle saying, this is where we've gotten to in our world. And people believe that if you change the battery of that remote control, the connection gets better. But as he said to me, you actually had to get your hands dirty and go to the television and fix it for a moment. And that's a little bit the phenomenon we're talking about here. So you need to spend time in the consumer homes. And that's what I do. So just like you are helping salespeople and marketing people to to be better, what I try to do is I actually bring them into the homes and I say, look at this, observe this together with me. And you will see it's such a big eye opener for everyone because they realize, gee, this is who's paying my salary every day. I never thought about this before. Let me uh, switch gears on you. What do you think about, do you have a, a personal meditation practice? What do you think about that for resetting and taking time to get away from the screen, uh, not have the phone in your hand and reboot? Well, I actually do have uh, three tricks. Um, the first one is I'm swimming a lot. Uh, so in the entire book you are, you have read uh, and are about to read the rest of uh, is actually uh, written in the swimming pool. I have a, a notepad in its end and then I'm swimming back and forth because I call that the water moment. And I actually do believe we all have a water moment. I'm using it as a metaphor now. Whether that is in the shower, whether that is running, whether that is driving, we all have a space where we have our thoughts free-floating. Now, you need to preserve that space. A lot of people are not aware of that space. They have to find that space. Once you have it, you have to do an appointment with it because that is actually your meditation space. The second thing I I tend to do is I, I... force myself through transitions. So I always wear black when I'm at work. And when I'm not at work, I never wear black. And it actually helps my brain to say, now I'm in a work mood, now I'm not. Because here's the issue, we don't have that anymore. We, we really are blending life, private or work together to such degree that our brain really never can settle down. The third thing will probably surprise you, I don't have a smartphone. And uh, I decided not to have one on purpose. And that's not because I sort of am old-fashioned because I was the first to write a book about how to build brands on the internet in 1994 when the World Wide Web was invented. But um, it's because I know and I've noticed that I'm not present anymore. And that means I don't have that temptation you have, that split second where I feel bored to just grab it and do something. I'm forced to observe people. I just heard Seth Godin on Tim Ferriss's podcast talk about Neil Gaiman um, and and how he writes. And basically he said he just sits until he's bored enough that the book comes out. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, exactly. and that's it. So it's the leaving space for that, for yeah. that insight <clears throat> and that creativity to exist. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. awesome. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to totally shift gears now. And I, sure. I warned you about asking you questions. Yeah. Uh, the, these are, are personal. So sure. I, uh, 
I, especially because you're so smart, I want you to share this with Thank us. You. What are you reading right now? I don't read. You don't read. <laughs> Nothing. I don't read. I don't read business books. No, no, because I, I stopped reading business books about 15 years ago because I uh, I'm afraid of um, stealing. Being derivative, sure. Yeah. So Do you read fiction. So, I read fiction. Yeah, I, I read uh, lots of fiction. Uh, I read you know, everything from Harry Potter to sophisticated things to, to the Quran or the Bible or to anything really because it gives me inspiration. But the business books um, is tricky for me because um, first of all, I, I, I do feel sometimes when I see a great idea, I'm getting angry at myself. I didn't get that idea. And I am really actually very afraid of I'm stealing. So, so that's the reason why I'm staying away from it. That's a, a good plan. What If you could pick a book that would be the most important book that you've read, what would it be? It actually was David Ogilvy on advertising, which I read in 1984 uh, when it was published. And it, so I was 14 back then. And it was really an eye-opener for me as a kid because David Ogilvy somehow became my hero when I was 14 years old. And I started to understand the power of communication in a much more advanced degree than, than what I knew back then. So yeah, actually that was eye-opener for me. I had, But that was back in the business book days, I guess. <laughs> Who, who's had the biggest influence on your thinking? Um, the consumer, I have to say, in the end of the day. Um, I actually always wanted to have a mentor, but I never found a mentor. I've become a mentor for many people, but I never found a mentor. I actually would like to have one, to be honest, because sometimes it's nice to to bounce your ideas against someone. Um, but the consumer has become my my sort of my mentor in many ways because it's made me grounded. I mean, it sounds crazy, but you know, uh, if I take some of the stories I'm writing about in the book where I'm flying around in a private jet with my client who's paying for all this for three weeks across Siberia and seven time zones and I'm half an hour away from Tokyo, that's how big Siberia is. And then I'm actually dressing down as I leave the plane from black to to ordinary Russian clothes to blend in with the local culture, I suddenly become it with people. And I really get a lot of sympathy from it because I literally in, in uh, let's take Nigeria, I'm living on the ground in in the favelas in Brazil, I'm living on mud in a in a small sort of shed type of thing, and I love consumers. I love people, um, because they all have a view of life which is treasures in one way. And very few people are prepared, I think, in our roles to get our hands dirty and um, and actually to to let go of our identity. It's very hard, I can tell you, because you are no one. You're nobody when you go into a consumer home. You are basically just an ordinary person talking to another person. And that is where you learn the most because then you don't have that perception wrapped around you, whether that is a flashy watch, it's flashy clothes, or it's your title, or it's your brand, right? What is the most important lesson you've learned in just in, in your life up to this point? I, I think the most important lesson I've learned so far is never to believe my own stuff. And the day I believe it, I should quit working. And that sounds strange, but it means that you're constantly skeptical about what you're saying. <coughs> and <clears throat> that leads me to, to, to two things. First of all, I continue drilling down in understanding human psychology. I mean, I've written 
now seven books about the topic. And every time I hopefully get closer to the goal, but I never sit down and rest and say, that's it. I mean, when I wrote uh, biology, as we talked about previously, where we scan consumers' brains, I think many people would say, well, then you really got as close to the source as possible. Now you understand the consumer, but I didn't stop there. The second thing spinning out of that is I trust my instinct more and more. And I think the issue with business people is that they don't do that. And, and the, here's the issue. I was driving once from Poland to Austria to Vienna and my GPS broke down. There was no maps in any station, gas stations anymore because there is no maps anymore in our world. So I had to drive on instinct and I never driven on that path before. And surprisingly, and particularly for myself, I arrived spot on to the hotel where I was meant to go without any navigation, really. And that was the second I realized if you follow your instinct, you actually are very powerful. The problem is an instinct is incredibly fragile. If I just give you a little hint in one direction, you will immediately lose your instinct. And the issue is today with business people that sit in the offices with all these numbers flicking through the screen. And as you do that, you actually lose your instinct. But I actually fundamentally believe that the strongest leaders around have an incredible powerful instinct. Um, I mean, I had the honor of, of spending time with Ingmar Kamprand, which is the founder and the owner of IKEA. And when I met up with him in Stockholm in his store, I went to the office, I asked, where is he? And they said, well, he's at his usual place. I said, where's that? At the checkouts. So I went down to the checkouts and sure, right, you're sitting there, the cash register checking people out. And all Lonsa said to him, why do you do that? He said, because that's the way I build my instinct about the consumer. That's how I learn by looking them in the eyes. Robert, Robert Murdoch, um, he reads 50 newspapers every day. And he's able to pick up the phone and say to his editor of The Sun, uh, which is sort of a gossipy type of newspaper in the UK, that that consumer would not think like that, so that headline's wrong. And he will do the same for Wall Street Journal or The Australian because he knows his audience so well that he actually can put his feet, or his feet into the shoes of the consumer and think like them. And that's called instinct. And today I don't think business leaders have it. Some has, but they're diminishing it because big data is so overwhelming that we become insecure. We're basically saying to ourselves, well, we have all this data now. I want more data to verify it and suddenly becomes a addictive nature. So all of that comes back to one thing that is to trust your instinct. And in this case, never feel that anything is good enough. Continue striving to make it better. Well, that, that's what a scientist does. I mean, you continue to test the yeah. hypotheses again and yeah. again. If yeah. you weren't writing, speaking and consulting, what would you be doing? Uh, I would be an inventor, I think, um, because I, I come out of an, a weird family. Um, my uh, my dad's family uh, is the Dolby family uh, here in the US. Sure. Um, so, so invention is a big part of it. My granddad was one of the first people to invent the plane and fly over the Atlantic and and stuff like that. So it's a very inventive, very creative family I'm coming from. Uh, and actually, way, 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 way back in time, my family invented the Mets box for whatever that's worth today. <laughs> Never got a penny out of it, but it sounds good, all of that. Um, so I do think that uh, fundamentally I'm, I'm into creativity and, and the way I define creativity is really to combine two ordinary things in a new way, which is what I'm doing through my books. And, and that's the reason why I'm such a big fan of small data because small data is really the key or the foundation to be creative. Whereas that's the reason why I have problems with big data. 
is not to say I hate big data. Well, I actually do, but it is to say that that uh, it's like two two partners in a dance, and it actually takes two to ten to tango. And right now, there's only one person dancing. Yeah. What do you hope to be remembered for? Um, I probably hope to be remembered for for being the person who's managed to peel an onion called the ordinary human beings and see see dimensions of our lives from not just one angle, from so many angles, and actually be the person who's added human dimensions into our way of understanding ourselves and making everyone become more creative and more aware and more observant. Um, because I do think that being present is disappearing now. Being creative, being creative is disappearing now. And I do believe that we fundamentally today believe we can define people by numbers. But I don't need to tell you, if you were to define your wife, I'm sure you wouldn't say you love her because she's six feet seven tall or because she has a hair color with his Pantone color 5526 or uh, that she has the four large digit of her cell phone number is 2265 and it turns you on, right? But that's the way we define human beings today. And that's not the way you sort of describe love and emotions. That's how you describe love and emotions using small data. And I don't need to tell you if you really want to create emotional engagement using brands as a tool, but then you need to use that tool instead of the numbers, right? That's perfect. Thank you so much for your time. The book is Small Data. It came out this week, right? It did. Yeah, it came out Tuesday. And, and uh, we've been very lucky so far. It hit uh, the number one on Barnes & Noble for, for a while. I enjoyed the sunlight as I was beating Harry Potter. But uh, it was only for a short period of time. Well, <laughs> we'll send people to the book. And uh, can we have you back on next book? Absolutely. Okay. I'm first in line. And by the way, I'll take you on my show uh, when your book comes out the 11th of October, right? 11th October. That's right. Uh-huh. All right. Thanks, Martin. <laughs> Aren't you happy I introduced you to Martin Lindstrom? I'm happy that I got to meet him. In fact, I'm going to New York and I'm going to get him to dinner if he's in town or coffee or something because his brain is so magnificent. I want to spend more time getting to understand his thinking and continue to learn from him. He is Martin Lindstrom at martinlindstrom.com. His new book, Small Data, you can buy it anywhere. You can go to amazon.com. You can go to Barnes & Noble, or you can go out to thesalesblog.com and look at the show notes for this episode of In the Arena, and I'll link you straight there. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at anarino.com or thesalesblog.com, where I write and publish every day. You will be prompted to sign up for my newsletter. Please don't ignore that box. Show up and every Sunday morning, I'll drop actionable content in your inbox that you can use Monday morning. Thanks for being here and I'll see you next time in the arena.